You are listening to a podcast from Classic City Church. We're glad you've joined us. Our services are held at 10.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 595 Prince Avenue in the Piedmont Sanctuary. For more information, please visit www.classiccity.org. This is a sermon from Pastor Lee Mason. Good morning. How are we doing? That's great. It's a little warm. Um, as what's been said, the uh, air will be fixed next week. We uh, know about that. Let me... Uh, thank you, son. Appreciate that. I just wanted to make sure for the folks my age, I, I do wear... We do look like a pastor up here at times and want to be a little more... Uh, just at least wear the coat for a second. Anyways, um, good to see you all. Uh, if you have a Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus is the second book in the Bible. Exodus chapter 33. And we're going to begin a really, I think, an exciting new series um, this, this day uh, that I just, I love this. It's, um, we're going to call it the paradoxical faith. And we're going to talk about how uh, something that you'll find very interesting and unique in Christianity is that many of the doctrines, the seminal beliefs, the crucial beliefs of the Christian faith are paradoxical. And what I mean by that is a paradox is an apparent contradiction that's actually true. It's something that seems like there's no way this could happen, this is contradictory, these two don't go together, but we find out they do go together, and it's really in finding out there is a, usually a very empowering truth that uh, is very important for our spiritual lives. You know, if, if you uh, think in the world of shapes, think of two shapes. There's a triangle and a square. Everybody know what a triangle is? It's an object, it's a shape that has three sides and three corners. A square is an object that has four sides and four corners. A triangle is not a square. They're different, Correct. And something either has to be a triangle or it has to be a square. Something can't be both a square and a triangle at the same time. But there is an object that is both completely square and completely triangle. You know what that object is? A pyramid. A pyramid has triangle and it has squares, both united. And just as... And that's a lot of how Christian truths work. We're going to see that we see this characteristic and this attribute, and there's this characteristic and attribute that describe the same thing. And but when they come together, we realize there's an empowering truth there. There's a, a great thinker in Christianity that lived about 100 years ago named G.K. Chesterton. And he once made this observation of Christianity. He said, paradox is at the heart of Christianity. And it is precisely the paradoxical shape of its seminal doctrines that allows it to speak to difficult philosophical problems. So Christianity has a paradoxical shape to it. It is both and. We, we usually want to do either or. It's either this or this. And what we're going to find out with Christianity and our doctrines and our seminal beliefs is that there is an and there. God unites two polar opposite qualities to create in, in a unifying 
in a powerful and a profound truth. Now, the first paradox I want to look at is the paradox of God. God is a paradox. And let me illustrate this to you. Uh, In Exodus chapter 33, Moses is talking with God, and he asks a question in verse 18. Moses has had a tremendous experience with God. He's led Israel on this exodus. He's getting to know God, and he's kind of awed by him. And he asks this question in verse 18. He says, show me your glory. Show me your glory. He asks God that question. Now, what is he asking there is really important. When we say the word glory, it can be kind of a religious word or kind of a whatever word. But what what the word glory basically means is he's asking God, I want to see you at your peak. I want to see a demonstration of you that epitomizes how great and how awesome you are. We might call it kind of the signature moment that somebody has. When you think of a great man or a great leader, think of Martin Luther King. When we think of Martin Luther King's signature moment, when you think of when something about Martin Luther King that just epitomizes his greatness, his peak, his you know, signature moment, you think of the I have a dream speech. Martin Luther King holidays, when there's a little brief, always Martin Luther King is on the plaza and he's proclaiming his dream. And and that just sort of epitomized the the struggle and the greatness and the commitment and the passion of of a great and a significant leader in our country's history. His signature moment. And here's what God is telling in response to Moses' cry, I want to see you at your peak. I want to see a demonstration in you that just epitomizes your greatness. I want to see your signature moment. And God has a really interesting response. If you read on here, what he basically says is, look, you can't see my glory. I, right now, you, you see it, you're, you're a dead man. We can't, we can't let that happen. You can't see my glory. But what I'm going to do in a minute, he says, Moses, I'm going to walk by you And I'm going to at least proclaim my name to you. So you'll know what my glory looks like. You'll know the parameters of your glory. You'll know what makes me glorious. You won't see it, but you'll at least have some idea. You can think about why God is so great and so glorious and what epitomizes it. So if you read this story, Moses goes and he chisels out the Ten Commandments. And when he gets done, God kind of puts him on this side cliff and he walks by him. I'm going to read about this in chapter 34. In verse 5, it says, The Lord came down, and the cloud stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the name of the Lord. Verse 6, And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, and here's what he says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands He forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. He's love. He's merciful. He's forgiving and gracious, abounds in it. Now, look at the next sentence. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. And verse 8 says, Moses bowed down and worshiped. So when we 
Think about God. God is answering Moses' question. He tells him basically, listen, my glory, what epitomizes my greatness is a paradox. God at his peak is a paradox. And of two things that seem the polar opposites of each other, they seem utterly incompatible. God's attributes are simultaneously, he is merciful, gracious, forgiving, and love. Yet, he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes sin. He is just and he is righteous. And this is a profound paradox. How do we unite these two? How do we, what's the union of these two things? Of a God who is merciful and a God who is just. Of a God who is loving, yet a God who is wrathful and vengeful. Let me read you a couple of verses in the Bible that describe God. This is in Hebrew poetry, but these are the way God was described. Psalm 86, verse 5 says, You, Lord, are forgiving and good, abounding in love to all who call on you. Psalm 18.1 says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. In Lamentations 3.22, it says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy never comes to an end. It is new every morning. Isn't that awesome? Abounding in love, forgiving, gracious. Mercies are new every morning. Let me read you a few other passages of Hebrew poetry from the Bible. Psalm 7, verse 11. God is a righteous God. Excuse me, God is a righteous judge. A God who displays his wrath every day. Psalm 90, 11 says, If we knew the power of your anger, your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. And Nahum chapter 1 says, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. Filled with it. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. So if you read the Bible, you're going to see both of these descriptions of God. Gracious, loving, vengeful, wrathful. And what we tend to do is we tend to sort of cleave to one and kind of reject the other. In fact, if you look at the songs that we sing, how many of them sing and mention God's love, mercy, grace? There's always something like that in most of our worship songs. How many sing about God's wrath and vengeance and judgment? We don't, get, we don't sing about that. And what we, what we tend to do, and why this is unhealthy, is we, we, we tend to teach, treat God like a weird uncle. And we, we really do. We treat him like our, you know, your weird uncle who comes. You gotta, he never got married. He comes to things, and he's, he's kind of interesting because, he, you know, he's, he's full of ideas and thoughts. He sits around and reads everything, and you're like, he's super interesting. He's super cool. You're, you're their only, you know, you're the nephew, and the, he, so they love you because they, they, they come to your games, and they're cool, and they give you great gifts because they have a lot of money because they don't have a family. So they're really cool. There's something like he's a great uncle, but then he tells you his latest conspiracy theory. And you go, oh, that's Uncle Charlie, you know, and you kind of get dismissive. And, 
And that's what we tend to do with God. You know, God, well, what about all these verses about God, a God of wrath? And you, you, and you just kind of, oh, you know, don't, don't look at that. Uh, you know, don't look, don't. Oh, it's not. He's really a great guy. And, and this is incredibly unhealthy. So we're going to find out. And so what I want to do, let's look at, and I'm going to take some time this morning, and look at what is the biblical basis for God being a God of wrath. And a God of judgment and a God of justice. Now, if you look in the Bible, many of the passages, and they're really beautiful passages that describe God, like the one in Nahum we just read, and the ones in Psalms, as a judge and as a vengeful God and as full of wrath, they emerge from something that was part of Hebrew culture, Hebrew social life, back when Moses was writing out the law and writing out the culture and the mores and the social. Uh, interactions of the Hebrew people. And you can read about this, particularly in Numbers chapter 35, there's a lot about this, but there was a character that is called the Goel. Everybody say Goel. The Goel. And this guy was kind of the head of the clan. And a clan would be like, you know, a few layers of family. It wouldn't be the entire tribe, but just several layers of cousins and uncles, and he was the Goel. He was the guy, and he had some duties he was in charge of. Number one, he was in charge of, if one of his stupid nephews got in trouble, got in debt, and had to sell himself into slavery to pay off his debt, the Goel would go, nah, my nephew's not going to be enslaved. I'll go pay, and he would pay the debt off himself. He'd probably kick the nephew, you know, like, don't do that again, but he would, he would pay it off, and he would cover that if one of his kinsmen lost their land, he would go and he would pay back the debt and he would restore their land to them. That's what the Goel did. And if a widow, somebody in their family was widowed, he would make sure she was taken care of and the orphan was taken care of in their clan. He, was, he had that responsibility. But he had one other responsibility. And it call, it, if one of their kinsmen was the victim of a capital crime, they were murdered or a, one of the daughters were raped, something that there was a death penalty involved with it. This guy was responsible to make sure the perpetrator experienced justice. And that meant this. If the guy got off scot-free, he would go hunt him down and kill him. If the guy was arrested and brought on trial and found guilty, the people in charge, the authorities, would turn this perpetrator who killed their nephew or raped their niece, they would turn him over to the Goel, and the Goel would take him back to the tribe, and they would administer justice on him. That's who the Goel was. Anybody ever see the uh, movie Tombstone? Anybody? Okay, next week I want everybody to see this movie. It's a terrific movie. Tombstone, one of the great movies of all time. And, and if you go in and watch the movie, there's this scene where um, uh, it opens. There's this, these, this gang called the Cowboys, and they kill a policeman, and they attack his wife and then they shoot the preacher which is like a horrible thing to do they kill the preacher they do all this and like the foaming scene and you're if you've watched the movie you go oh my gosh some these guys 
somebody needs to kill them. They need to be, they need to be, some, they need to do away with these fellows pretty quick. And you just get, and nothing that happens the first hour of the movie ever changes that opinion about these guys, the cowboy gang. And then you introduce a guy named White Earp. And uh, it's a famous kind of lore in old American history, even what happens. But basically what happens is these two sort of, there's this brimming kind of conflict. The cowboy gang kills one of his brothers and injures the other. And uh, there's a scene in the a train station where they think they're going to finish off Wyatt, and Wyatt kind of tricks them. And there's a scene where he gets, he kills a couple of them. The other one, he's got a gun on him, and he's just like enraged. And he says, you tell them I'm coming, and hell's coming with me. And the, the rest of the movie, he just goes and shoots the place up. It's like the greatest <laughs> shoot 'em up movie in the history. All men should, should love this. And, uh, and, but but th- that scene where he is, he's, he, that is wrath. It is a guy, the, the word in the Hebrew means your nostrils are flaring. And he is just incensed. You killed my brother. You tried to kill me. I am, I am coming after you. That is what the goel of a tribe looks like. Committed to justice. And it's not just justice. It is justice with an attitude. And that's what wrath is. Justice with an attitude. And so there was this character in the Hebrew culture. And when he was the avenger of blood, is what they literally called him, the, the Goel Hadim is how they actually said it. It's often translated the defender. When you read it in your Bible, it's about 100 times in the, in the Bible. The defender, the defender. Over and over again. That's how God is mentioned. That's, that's the idea behind it. Now, what happened in Israel's history as they went along as a nation? Again, they had land. They had a government. Things were going great. They, they were conquered and invaded, first by a group of uh, the Persians, and then later they were invaded by the Babylonians. And these, these guys were like ISIS on steroids. They were ruthlessly cruel, vicious to women, enslaved children, and when they are in captivity, and these guys have taken over their land, they often pr- and they wanted God to be their Goel Hadim, and they would pray to Him. And a lot of times they use the word Redeemer, but all, but other times they use the word Defender. But it was like, I want you to get our land back. I want you to free us from slavery. And then they also said, I want you to avenge our blood. I want you to avenge the torture and the torment our women and our children went through. We want you to be our blood avenger. We want you to be our great defender to right these wrongs and make them pay. And that was in their heart. And God revealed himself that way. That that's who he would be. The Goel Hadam. And when you read over and over again about this character and his position... In the Old Testament, it has particular application to orphans and the fatherless. God promises he will be the Goel Hadam, the great defender of the orphan and the fatherless. You know, today, in Thailand, men who are making millions on sex trafficking will go to the villages and they will buy little girls from their parents, from their poor parents, And they'll take them back, and from a very young age, their whole life will be dedicated to making them money 
by fulfilling the perverted fantasies of sick men. That's their whole life. Their whole life will be that. In India, orphan kids that roam the streets, there's, there's men that will kidnap them, and they will literally cut off their limbs so they can beg for food and give them the money. Listen, I, get, I, am, I am so fed up with this kind of, that we're embarrassed by a God of wrath. We need a God of wrath. What kind of God is going to sit there and look at these victims and say, oh, hey, love wins, guys. Y'all come into heaven too. You really think that's what Almighty God's going to do? Would you do that? Would you do that? Almighty God promises an incredible imagery over and over again in the prophets and in the Old Testament and in the book of Revelation. He will be the defender of those who have been oppressed, those who have been persecuted, those who have been abused and used by evil people. He promises he will be. And what's really amazing is that when you see these, the Bible says you and I are going to cheer. We're going to worship and say, your judgments are true and righteous. The whole camp of Christians are going to go, man, that's our God. That's exactly how our God treats those kind of things. And the Bible says even the nations, even the unbelievers, when they see God judging these men who did that, they're going to cheer. And they're going to worship him and say, God, you are, you you righted those wrongs, man. You came through in the end. And we have an incredible God because he is a God of justice and he is a God of wrath. It's a powerful thing to read Revelation 6 when the great and the generals and the oppressors of, of humanity stand before him. You can read the language in verses 14 through 16. And they really are going, gosh, let the, they're crying out to the mountains, let the rocks fall on us. I I want an avalanche to happen on me right now because I am terrified of the wrath of the Lamb and the wrath of Almighty God. I I can't even look at His face. Hide me from His face. Could you imagine the horror that people are going to have when they face Almighty God and He is with their victims and He holds them accountable for the sin and the degradation and the oppression they've done. That is who God is. The great defender. The Noel Hadam of the weak and the fatherless and the orphan. And it will be an awesome sight. And you will cheer. And the nations will cheer with you. That's what the Bible means by a God of wrath. It's the typical imagery of it. And that's sensational. Except for one thing. Eventually, God is going to judge you and me also. Each one of us. Individually. Very thoroughly. Now, I'm a very good person. At least I think. I mean, I've never, I've never been drunk in my life. I never did drugs. I was a good dad, I think. Reasonably good dad. Maybe some dispute there. I think I was a fairly good dad. I, you know, I, I, I don't go to bad places. I don't look at bad websites. I tip waiters and waitresses very generously. 
You know, I am a, I am a, I mean, you know, you look at the shell of Lee Mason, you're, you, you got a pretty impressive, and I should be, I'm a minister. I'm a, you got a good, moral, healthy guy here, reasonably moral, uh, relatively good. But when it talks about God's judgment in Romans, it uses, in, it's in chapter 2, verse 16, it says something that is very unnerving to me, and it should be very unnerving to everybody in here. Because in chapter 2, verse 16, it says that God is going to judge our secrets. Really? God's going to judge your secrets. Now, again, like I said, I'm a pretty good fellow. But I know this for a fact. If you knew about me what I know about me, I couldn't sit across the table from you. You know what? If I knew about you what only you know about you, you know what? You couldn't sit across the table from me. How on earth are we going to stand before a God who knows our secrets? How are you going to do it? Now, I don't have any confidence in that moment. That makes me feel pretty hopeless, pretty helpless. And this brings us to our second attribute of God. God of mercy. Now, the, the Hebrew word for mercy is very, very cool. It's a neat word. It means literally, uh, it has seed is the word. It literally means the offended bows to the offender. That means you've done me wrong by you, but you know what? I'm going to bow to you. I'm going to treat you like differently. I'm not going to treat you like someone who's offended me. I'm going to treat you like someone who matters and who's important. That's an incredible word for God, that God would look at, the, at us, the, his offenders, and he would bow his seed, mercy. When we look in the Old Testament, we see this imagery of wrath. We see these depictions of God that are just awesome and powerful. The, the idea of justice, there's, there's like a little, little syncopation, a little something that's different. You'll find it's threaded throughout the Old Testament. It starts with the story of when Abraham makes his covenant with God. They make a covenant. Abraham is waiting on God. He, and what they're supposed to do in these covenants, he cuts open all these animals there's the two parties are supposed to walk through them and make a covenant and basically say, I'm cursed if I break this covenant. I'm judged if I break this covenant. Something weird happens. Abraham actually sets this whole thing up. He waits for God. He falls asleep. And when he's asleep, God comes and he manifests himself in two different ways, a pot and a torch. And he basically walks through this thing. And basically in that, what he would communicate to Abraham and to that culture was, hey, I'm making a covenant with you, but if you break the covenant, I'll pay for it. I'll be punished when you break the covenant. Just a, a weird thing to happen. Then later on when Moses is leading Israel out and they're at this place, they, they come to this place and there's supposed to be water there and there wasn't any and they get mad and then they get mad at God. And they begin to bring a, a literally a lawsuit against God. And Moses doesn't know what to do, and God says, look, what I'm going to do is I'm going to stand on this rock where the guilty stand, where the accused stands, and I want you to strike the rock. And Moses is like, 
what? Like a criminal? You want me to treat you like a common criminal? Strike the rock? He struck the rock, and what happened? Water burst forth. It was a strange story. In fact, God said, I want you to rename this place Mirabah and Manasseh because it means literally lawsuit and uh, trial. I want you to remember that there was a moment when you brought a lawsuit against me and I was put on trial. And salvation was the consequence of it. It's a weird, weird story. In the Old Testament, when they set up their worship and they set up their, their uh, festivals, they had one festival, Yom Kippur, and they had this thing they would do. They would bring this goat up, and the priest would put his hands on the goat's head, and he would confess all the sins of the people. And then they would lead the goat out and take it away to be judged. And again, it's the idea, we, we get the word scapegoat from that. It means somebody who takes all the blame. You have that odd thing. And then we have this odd verse here in Isaiah. Let me read it to you real quickly. Isaiah 53. Isaiah's prophecy. I'm going to start with verse 4. He says, Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. Verse 6 says, we all have gone astray. Each has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on us, on him, the iniquity of us all. What a a powerful thing. On someone else is laid the iniquity of all of us. He was oppressed, afflicted. He didn't open his mouth. He goes on. Verse 10, it says, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer and though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And, and he goes on. And we understand what that's talking about. That was written almost 900 years before Jesus came. But it's, it's again, in the Old Testament, this idea of there is coming a being, there is coming a Messiah, there's coming a Savior who will bear the sin. He'll bear the iniquity of us all. We've all gone astray like a sheep, every one of us. But he will bear our iniquity himself. The Lord lays the sin of him, his, our sin on him. He bears it himself. And what's so powerful is in that moment, we see something happen. And through that crucifixion, obviously he's talking about Jesus being crucified on the cross and what he did on the cross. And although we know that's a demonstration of God's love for us, it's also a demonstration of God's justice. Because there, God punished your sin and my sin once and for all. And so we see this powerful thing, the triangle of mercy, the square of justice, united in the pyramid of the cross. And what is so awesome, that is the moment that epitomizes God's greatness. What's so great about God? The cross. What's the greatest signature moment of Almighty God? The cross. Where is God at his peak when Jesus Christ is hanging on the cross? That paradox of God's justice and God's mercy coming together in that awesome moment. That is God at his peak. It's an incredible demonstration of him. Epitomizes how great and how extraordinary he is. 
Let me close with this. There's one repercussion of this that's really, really powerful. And it's a passage in 1 John that highlights this. Many do. But it talks about this. If, we're faith, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. And he says this, to forgive us our sins. How is that true? God is just to forgive. How many believe God's merciful to forgive you of your sins? Everybody? How is it just, though? How is it the just thing for God to do? And he goes and explains it in this passage, but let me just tell you real quick. He calls Jesus the payment for our sins, the complete total payment. You know, if you committed a speeding violation and you paid the fine and you go before a judge and he says, Don Nelson, you know, I'm going to put you in jail for 30 days because you sped. Don, what would you say back to him? I'll put you on the spot here. Huh? <laughs> say I paid the fine. <laughs> Thank you. Somebody out there is listening today. Okay, that's good. Anyways, you say, I paid the fine. What are you talking? I'm, not, I'm not paying. That's unjust, judge. The penalty's been paid. I'm free. And this is, what, this is the point John's making. It's just. God's a just God to forgive because the price has been paid. And because of that, you know what we can be? John goes on later in his, in his book to say, you know, you and I can be confident in the day of judgment. Isn't that incredible? That's possible for you and me with all our secrets, with all our sins, with all our baggage, with all our defilement. I can be confident in the day of judgment. Because on the cross, 2,000 years ago, this awesome thing happened. God was manifested in his greatness. Wrath and mercy came together. And the great defender of the broken and of the weak and of the orphan and of the oppressed became the defender of the sinful and of the defiled and of the guilty. And all that Christ asks us to do is to receive him as Lord and Savior. Confess our need for him. Be honest. Be real about who we really are. Our need for forgiveness. Our need for mercy. Receive Him as Lord. Receive Him as Lord. That's who God is. Moses asked, what are you really like? He says, I'll tell you. But years later, he showed us. That's who he is. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the just great demonstration of you that happened 2,000 years ago on the cross. When your love for humanity was just poured out by you bearing the judgment and the wrath of God for all of us. And we thank you for the wonder of it. It is awesome. And I pray that you would just, Lord, just unite our hearts to awe you and to revere you and 
in wrath and in mercy and revere your work on the cross and understand you are great and you are a holy and you are an awesome being. And we, we thank you for what you've done for us in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Classic City Church. We hope that together we can honor the greatness of Jesus by growing spiritually, living authentically, and participating in his purposes. For more information or more sermons from Classic City Church, please visit www.classiccity.org.